0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
1: EV adoption is less of a consumer appetite for electric drive and more of a, I just want a car that I like that fits my lifestyle that I can afford.
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How is everybody doing? I'm doing fabulous. Thank you. Went skiing last week, uh, which was really awesome. Don't get to do much l- leisure these days, but um, and we didn't have a ton of snow, but then on the last night it dumped like a foot. Um, so we had some good snowball fights or we did some sledding, hot tub in the snow. Always a good thing. It was fantastic. Um, So I'm feeling refreshed and just a teensy bit optimistic about life. With vaccinations just continuing to roll out here, it just feels like people are starting to breathe a little easier. Like an invisible weight is getting just a little lighter everywhere. Um, Of course, everything's still largely shut down. We're still wearing masks, being safe. But it feels like there is, you know, there's a path out back into a world that in many ways I think will be just fundamentally different. Uh, And to that point, one of those ways, I think, um, it's not exactly pandemic related, but I think um, it's real, is how we get around. In the next year, more than 100 electric makes and models, electric cars, will hit the market in Europe and America. That is a lot. And it feels like this revolution, as previously discussed on this pod, is finally getting a foothold. And so the rush is now on also to build the infrastructure to support what is what we expect will be millions of new EVs kind of streaming out onto the streets, if you will, over these next few years. And one of those companies right out in the front of this is ChargePoint, which operates the world's largest network of charging points. Now, for longtime listeners, you may recognize that name because we had their chief executive Pat Romano on the pod just over two years ago. Um, which feels like a million years ago. That was when, of course, people were still talking about Tesla going bankrupt. They were still just trying to figure out how to manufacture the Model 3 and keep the lights on. It was a very different time. And Romano talked then about how when he started back in 2011, electric cars were basically a fantasy. That year he started, Americans bought just 17,000 electric cars total. Um, which is about one-tenth of one percent of the market. Um, Today, they're around two and a half percent, but gaining rapidly and led, of course, by Tesla. And so I wanted to have Pat back on for two reasons. One, the company just went public on the New York Stock Exchange by reversing into a SPAC, you know, these special purpose acquisition vehicles. All the rage these days. Um, And the stock has had a bit of a rough ride since then. It's now worth about $7 billion still. So despite the share price fall romano is still a very rich man given his uh, large shareholding and i also wanted to, to talk to him just about how the market has changed and what we are about to see as this rush of new cars and trucks hits the market and this point that I, you know i would argue it's it's a historic turning point where electric cars are about to hit this new level and really start to go mainstream anyhow it's a great study in just a slow burn startup finally starting to come of age, and actually showing how far it still has to go. ChargePoint's still losing money, still building its network, it still has to kind of prove it, and just goes to show you know that out here, not every success is overnight, especially when you're actually building physical stuff. So anyhow, I think you'll dig this one, and so I will now hand you over to Pat Romano, Chief Executive of ChargePoint enjoy
1: it's a week for you guys it's a big big week for you guys yeah it is you know what's funny about um doing this in a covid environment is we rang the bell virtually at the at the new york stock exchange yeah but there's no travel so all those travel hours are recycled so we've done obviously a lot of press there's been a lot of press activity and a lot of other things and I certainly would rather there not be a pandemic, but you get the travel time back, which is, uh, you know, which is a good thing. It makes it a little bit more, it makes it a little bit more sane. Um, you wind up. It's funny you don't have the travel stress on your, you know, the time zone shift on your body, but what you do have is you have to get up at whatever hour the task at hand dictates. If you were going to travel, you would have had to, you know, shift your time anyway. But it just, you know, you got to get used to the fact that sometimes you're up at four o'clock in the morning and that's just what
0: you do. Totally. Mm-hmm. So when when we get back to normal and everybody's
1: vaccinated, are you going to go back to doing as much traveling as you were before? You know, it's kind of funny. I uh, as, a, as a pre-answer to that question, I was... Uh, <laughs> Two companies ago, I did a company called Polycom, with a really good friend of mine. and you know we were big on trying to develop technologies that could reduce the amount of unnecessary travel. We didn't think that travel would be eliminated. In fact, it, it's it's kind of enhanced because you can develop relationships at a distance better than you could otherwise. I think we're living that now, finally, because we were forced to try it. And so if you look at things like flying to the East Coast, given that we're West Coast based for a one hour Meeting and then you know trying to fill the trip with some other stuff because you feel guilty about flying to the East Coast just for a couple <laughs> hours. Uh, that's gone. I think that's completely gone because a lot of the stuff that we've done in terms of investor investor relations, analyst relations, things like that. That stuff I think has got a good rhythm virtually. In fact, what I'm noticing is some things like board meetings where you have so many people from mm. you know we have people from Europe and things like that. It's actually more balanced because when everyone is the same size square with the same audio quality, the participation (laughs) is a little bit more balanced. So no, I don't think it goes back to the same level of travel, but I think that there's a lot of things that you do go back to. You do go back to. I think there's some... Uh, there's some you know kind of customer relationship things and and and, and really detailed meanings that you can't really do virtually as well. Yeah, it's fascinating.
0: It'll be interesting to see kind of, you know, what snaps back and what doesn't, mm-hmm. what kind of has sticking power. Mm-hmm. Um but that is actually not what we're here to talk about because I'm interested. I'm actually um looking into this for the paper is this, uh, you know, the kind of electric the coming electric car revolution or whether it's, you know, maybe it's already here. But I was wondering if you could lay out kind of what is coming over the next 12 or 24 months just in terms of the number of new electric cars because i think people don't haven't really fully clocked that yet right and i think it's just worth kind of laying that out as the groundwork and then we
1: get into what what you guys are up to yeah well i think the world is finally starting to see what a lot of folks like ourselves in the industry have been saying for a long time ev adoption is less of a consumer appetite for electric drive and more of a I just want a car that I like that fits my lifestyle that I can afford. I'm I'm not saying that there isn't usual skepticism about a new technology and are you know, you're taking the plunge too early? Your car's your second biggest purchase or your second big- biggest budget item next to your your home and your your housing expenses, but it's all about makes and models at the right price points. So I think this year and over the next eight you you gave it about an 18 month time span. I think that's right. You're seeing an inrush of the most popular vehicles on if we talk just about the US on US roads, uh, being available in an electric alternative. To date, you can't really buy an electric pickup truck. You don't have enough types of SUVs from the smallest crossover to the largest full size you don't have enough makes and models to cover what is half the u.s market it's trucks and suvs and people aren't going to change their lifestyle just because of electric drive versus fossil fuel they're not going to do that it's the same brain that's making this selection so you're going to get i think a lot more adoption as the model matrix fills in how many are coming and say like in the next 18 months
0: new these kind of new models that you know because everybody knows tesla and then maybe the chevy volt or the bolt i always get them confused but aside from that it's pretty it feels like it's pretty sparse but it does feel like that's about to change
1: um yeah i mean i don't have the exact count in my head uh, you know we've got we've got all that data but let's let's just talk about pickup trucks so you've got rivian going into production with the r1t which is a very nice vehicle You've got GM starting deliveries in this next 18-month time frame on the Hummer, which is kind of an aspiration-class truck, which I think is important. I think it's important to have aspiration-class vehicles that have super performance because I think it's it does a lot to dispel consumer myths that you're driving a golf cart when you're driving an electric car making a sacrifice. You're actually right. getting- Like the Tesla Roadster back in right. the day. Right. It's and Tesla's yeah. done a great job because they started in the luxury segment with what what was a very expensive Model S. And now they've moved down, you know, now you've got lower price points and you got even lower cost versions of the 3 and the Y. And so you know they're moving the technology down the price curve as they should. But things typically in the consumer space start at the aspirational level and move down and you're finally starting to see things that are moving into the into the realm of normalcy. You've got Lots of SUVs from a variety of manufacturers. You've got the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which uh, is is shipping now. A very very nice vehicle. Uh, you've got the new version of the Bolt that was just announced, which is a big upgrade on the Bolt platform from GM. You've just got, and then you've got a, a ton of the asian manufacturers and german manufacturers bringing new suv and crossovers online which i think are the they're the ones i look at for ev adoption in the united states i I mean i don't drive a pickup truck but i do have a model y and i went from an s to a y right because i only need i needed the hatchback and the cargo capacity of my s but i didn't need i don't as we were talking before i don't have little kids left at home so i don't have the need for the massive suv so a y is perfect and i think that's where the mach e fits i think that's where the new bolt fits i think you've got the uh the hyundai kona you've got lots of other vehicles out fit that segment and that's fleshing out nicely and there's a lot of different price point options
0: and so you know the the other obvious question and we covered this obviously. to some length when you were on the show last time but you know is there the question then is you know range anxiety are there enough chargers for people to not get caught
1: out that's not the that's never i think been the primary issue let's let's zoom back and talk about range anxiety for a second so the first thing that i always hear when people are talking about range anxiety is battery range and what's enough with respect to battery range so there's what's yeah. enough with respect to range and then what's enough with respect to charging infrastructure. There are two bookends of the same question. Yeah. So on the, on the range side, every, I think consumer is pattern matching on their gasoline car, not thinking of the fact that now electricity is pervasively distributed. So I'm gonna to be topping up all the time. I don't have to go, it's the tank size, the battery size, so to speak, is not dictating the frequency with which I go to a charging station not driving until you have a, the little yellow light come on and then go charge somewhere. But that's all they've known for 100 and plus years. Uh, and, the, you know, as I like to say, you know, we've immortalized that in movies and books and television. It's pop culture ingrained, but that's not the way you you drive an electric vehicle. And until they drive one or know someone that drives one, they don't know that. And so the natural question to ask is how big's the battery range? And I think once you get over about 250 miles, 300 miles of real mileage, not the, not the you know best it's driving, yeah, yeah, not the best driving condition, but real mileage, you're getting to a point where you have so much discretion as to how frequently you charge, even at home or at work. It really becomes very natural to almost always have plenty of range in your battery, which is great. So that's one component. Now let's talk about charging infrastructure. The charging infrastructure at home, if you have a single family residence, we can talk about apartments in a second, but if you have a single family residence, that's under your control. And so, you know, no one's complaining about access to home charging that owns a home with off-street parking. That's solvable. The multifamily apartment and condominium market is solving uh, it's a, we have a good multifamily program. I think we've figured out how to take the pressure off of landlords because it's more of a charging as a service model where a lot of the cost is borne by us. And then we bill the the tenant directly on a monthly basis. So the landlord, oh, really? mu- yeah, it's oh, much okay. more aligned with how the landlords want to deal with all the amenities, everything from, you know, laundry services to internet, to whatever. They just don't want to make the CapEx investment in that stuff because, it's not uniformly rentable. So if they just look at it as a drag and they understand on the other end of the spectrum, that it's also something that they need to attract people to their apartments and condominiums. So that's important. So there's a balancing act there. And that coupled with utility programs where the utility pays for the electrical upgrades on the site necessary to provide enough power. And then companies like us do the rest. I think that really meshes well. So that solves that issue over time workplace, That gets solved naturally by your employer because, um, you know, we're seeing very little resistance now and employers wanting to provide that. So that's most of your fuel. Now we're talking about home, we're talking about work. And then around town, that's coming up nicely, too, in parking, both private and and, uh, municipal parking scenarios. That's coming up along with cars. So there's the build with cars, right? It's not you're not going to build a quarter billion cars worth of charging infrastructure right now. Uh, Except that, that would be crazy. And I personally would love that. <laughs> it would be wonderful for our revenue, but I I would navigate that societally. And so now let's talk about the range anxiety piece that matters. That's driving beyond your battery range. That's 10% of the fuel. It's less than 10% of the sessions. What do you mean it's 10% of the you're, fuel? You're going to stop at something that looks like a gas station and fill up less than 10% of the time that you have a charging session, but more importantly, the amount of electricity that goes into your vehicle over the course of a year in that mode of what you're used to now as a weekly chore, going to the gas station is a 10% of the total energy in your vehicle use case. It is not a high use case. So
0: just so I understand. So the idea is that usually like if I have an electric car, I come home i plug it in in the garage or whatever and then maybe i drive it to work and i plug it in at the parking lot at work and the only times i'm actually going to what i would consider like a gas station equivalent a petrol station equivalent is like longer trips which years as you're saying is something like on the order of 10 percent of your kind of on a yearly basis what you would be doing
1: it's less than 10 percent of the times you plug in it's just that when you do plug in in those scenarios, you take awfully big gulps of power because you're trying to go beyond your battery range, and you have a fairly empty battery when you would stop under those conditions. So you're taking on sixty to eighty percent of your battery capacity in one session, which is not the norm for the balance of the year. So it's when you're going on holiday, you're going to visit family for you know a dinner, you're you're driving beyond your battery range, and it's important. And and so here's the interesting thing, you know. When I talk about this, most folks draw the conclusion that we don't care about that. We actually outsize care about that. And why we outsize care about that segment is consumers use worst case analysis for deciding what to buy. So a consumer goes to the, you know, buy a new car when their, you know, existing car is uh, getting old and they start to ask the question, well, do I need the off road package? Now, They've probably never been off-road in their entire life, but they decide to buy that. Do I need the lift kit in my pickup truck? Maybe they do that just for lifestyle <laughs> reasons, but they don't have a real yeah. reason to need it for ground clearance. Do I buy the massive uh, SUV? Because one day I might take my child's entire soccer team camping, right? So that's how a consumer thinks. So when you when they go to buy an electric version, of those vehicles, they ask the question, well, what if I wanted to drive across the country? Now, the frequency of doing that is incredibly low, but they still test the vehicle's capability against that use case, regardless of how infrequent it might be. So it is important in the early days to have the backbone of an organized set of chargers at about 75-mile spacing or less. With enough capacity, so you can reliably drive beyond your battery range in any country on the planet, right? That's just a necessary thing to really just erase the last hurdle of consumer confidence in buying an electric vehicle. I think they understand the performance is good, the cost structure is better over the life of the vehicle, fuel costs are stable and low, maintenance costs are low. They get all that. <laughs> what they yeah, yeah, well now, yeah, the yeah. last thing they want to say is it's I am. You know, unlike the really rich people, I can only afford one car and I got to be able to use it in all use cases. So can I buy that car and go on vacation with it? And once that answer is obviously yes, the magic happens. So once you get that backbone network of chargers, then what happens is the organic fill-in happens. Because our gas stations right now, our petrol stations are have organically been placed because we've had 135 years to do this and we figured out where where consumers want to stop and what they want to eat and what they want to buy when they do stop because that's what's making the money by the way it's not the fuel what's making the money is the can is the retail concessions that are on the site
0: yeah it's the it's the cigarettes and 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 coke and and really crappy right. gas station food.
1: Right. So so given that that's where the money's being made and that's been an organic fill, once you have this backbone where you're connecting the dots at all major corridors in any country and and you can support the number of EVs that are on the road, which albeit is a small percent penetration right now, then what happens is the businesses that are serving the long-haul driving market, regardless of fuel type. Liquid legacy fossil fuels or electricity start to convert more and more of their capacity to electric fueling, and then boom, it's done. At that point, now the snowball's rolling downhill, the businesses will sustain it, and it's just normal driving. You know, one of the things that I like to tell our employees is there's going to come a day when no one uses the term EV, it's just a car. And when you get to the point where the places you would normally stop, for a bottle of water uh, or coffee on a long trip while you're fueling, well, when those start to convert to electricity naturally with no subsidy and they view it as a a good thing, which is starting, it's starting now, it's just going to be a place you stop for fuel.
0: And how long, so if that's kind of a journey with a beginning and an end, how close to the end are we in terms of that infrastructure being
1: built up? Are we
0: 10% of the way there? 20%
1: I think you're, it depends on the country. It depends. Let's, let's talk about the UK for a second. Instavolt's a customer of ours in the UK, and they have a very highly rated fast charge network in the UK. They have an incredible number of sites. So for the UK, you got the basic scaffolding in place. Maybe there's a few places, a few corridors that, that aren't covered and that'll get there. But in the UK, I mean, you're probably, you're, you're not at the middle yet. With respect to everything being covered, but you're getting close. There's a lot of other countries that are not as organized with respect to that. I would say that the US, depending on the state, is not as organized, right? With respect to broad, available to any maker model charging across the United States, but that's getting there. That's getting there, right? It's just not 100% built out. You're a little bit behind the UK. Now, granted, the UK is a, a much smaller geography, so a little bit easier to electrify just because of the number of highways.
0: To celebrate the beginning of spring, save 50% on full digital access to The Times and The Sunday Times for six months and stay well-informed on the latest stories. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash Danny in the Valley and subscribe today. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy.
1: There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: And there isn't, or is there still an issue with, you know, like you read these articles less now, but the articles around where it's just a a lineup of all the different charger types for your cell phone. Oh yeah. You know, there's like 18 different charger types and it's like, you know, is, why don't we just have one standard? So this makes life just a lot easier for everybody. Is there an equivalent issue with the charging infrastructure where it's like, well, I can go to a charge point place, but if I go to like electrify America point, oh, well, they don't actually, I can't, my car can't be charged there.
1: Yeah, no, um, the beauty of the connectors, uh, well, let me zoom back. I know that in general, we're talking to a UK audience here. The answer in the UK is actually a little bit different than it is in the United States. It's a In Europe in general and the, and the UK, it's fully standardized and the connector on the car Is a very specific fast charge connector that is available on literally just every make and model out there. Um, And so you're seeing that convergence there. In the US market, you're pretty much there, but Tesla has a slightly different connector because they started so early. They have a different connector on their vehicles, and there's an adapter to enable you to charge on a normal everyday home or workplace charger seamlessly. Works just like anything else. You just have to use this little adapter. There are bigger adapters that you can use that are different that you can use for fast charging in the United States if you own a Tesla and want to stop at a non-supercharger. And the supercharger network is pretty well built out. But if you, if you want to stop at a non-supercharger, then you have to have an adapter handy that you've purchased for that fast charge case and you're limited to about 50 kilowatts. So your peak speed's limited if you're using that adapter for very practical reasons and there's no artificial reason there. It's just when you're going through the adapter, there's a no limit to how much power you can push through it and not have it overheat. So you still need a, a dongle in some cases here. Only basically. yeah. In the Tesla case, in the non Tesla case, yeah. you don't, but Tesla has a pretty good organized supercharger network. So the flip side is you've got that to use. So you guys, as you say, you
0: rang the bell at the New York stock exchange. Why do a spec? I mean, I know that specs there's a bajillion specs and everybody, it's, you know, 2021 is SPACtastic, but why
1: Why did you guys go this route and what does it help you do? So we were planning on taking the company public probably a little bit later than right now, but not much, maybe a year out from about now, within that year, yeah. we would have taken it. This is based on pre-COVID thinking, okay? And once COVID hit, obviously, you're no one knew how long. Or what the impact would be, of that economically, and that has big effects on, you know, whether the stock market would even accept an IPO, regardless of company. But it turned out that the the market window was open, and because this back phenomena has uh, gained in popularity, and options for companies like us, what it affords you to do is put a little more information out there and have a little uh, fuller conversations with investors and analysts to teach them about how the economics work in our business, and. If you go public to normal route, you're, you're more constrained. So, and, and it's not well understood. We're pleasantly surprised though at the investor and analyst interest in really learning about what moves the needle in this space. If I had to do it again, I would still go this route, given the timing, because I think it's been invaluable to be able to have those additional conversations. If you look at our filings in going public, there's a lot more projection information in our filings than there would be if we had gone public on the normal route and a lot more business model narrative, which wouldn't be the case if you were going public normally. So that's the reason for us. Now, different companies will have different reasons.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the key attractions, right, is that you don't, in a typical IPO, you're quite limited as to what you can say and you're kind of lawyered up the wazoo, whereas this, it feels like you have a lot more (laughs) leeway into just kind of projections and kind of laying out the the path in a way that you simply can't and you know there's good there's good and bad sides of that but it does feel
1: like you know that's why one of the attractions to the spec route yeah if you look at the way we looked at it is okay the window's open to get access to public market capital about a year early about a year early from going naturally because in about a year from now Without that extra information, analysts and investors kind of understand the space, given the momentum that's building in the space. So if there's appetite to go out a year early and to have access to that capital so you could support whatever you need to support to grow in two continents, it's really something that you have to have your head examined not to do. If you have the maturity to be public. Now, one of the things that you've got to realize is you go through this process, no panacea, you're a public company at the end. Right, and you got to and you got to be able to deal with that. You've got to have the internal maturity to do it. And why?
0: Do you have a sense of why? Because it does feel like a lot of SPACs are bringing companies to the market that are in the electric vehicle space, whether it's infrastructure Mm -hmm. like yourselves or you know, there's a whole bunch of actually car makers, some of which seem to be still kind of very much in the science project phase, are still kind of they're getting this money and going public and becoming public companies and it's but it does feel like with this whole new world of SPACs as an IPO alternative that the electric cars companies and sector in particular has really benefited from
1: this. Yeah, I think I think it's the chicken not the egg. The egg is investors are suddenly woken up saying oh my God, it is happening. All of the dominoes are falling into place. We can actually propel ourselves with electricity and big batteries. I need to move into this space. I got to get a piece of this, right? And so that's, the, so that's the, the eye-opening, so to speak, for everyone in the sector, in the space, whether you're char- Now there's fewer charging infrastructure companies by definition than vehicles because vehicle space is pretty fragmented forever for the last hundred years, right? There's a lot of car companies. And if you're a car company, you need a lot of, unlike us, you know, we don't, we don't have a capital intense model. I'm not, it's not a value judgment. It's just our business model isn't capital intense because we don't own chargers and sell power. We actually sell the gear and subscription services. So the faster the market grows, the more profitable we can become. We can cross through into profitability and then become uh, increasingly profitable in that direction because it's not capital intense. So for us, it's about capital to get to the goal line and chase the scale, but there's a limit to how much we need. You look at a vehicle company or a battery company, they need a lot of capital because they have to build factories, they have to establish supply chains. There's only so many cars that a factory can pump out. And they need access to public market capital to be able to do that. So once the eye opened and investors are willing to lean into it a little bit, I think that's why you see so many companies going after that space because the check size, the access to bigger capital is there. It's only so much on the private side. You're not going to raise $5 billion on the private side,
0: right? It's not happening. And so how much did you guys raise? And also like, where are you in terms of, Number of chargers or charging points, and what's the kind of what's the plan? How are you going to use this? The money that you've just raised.
1: So we uh, pre-IPO, and so over the 13 years of being private, we raised in the in the mid sixes, call it 650 in round numbers or so uh, million dollars. Obviously, if you look at the distribution of how that came in, uh, it's back end loaded. Obviously, it's com- directly proportional to market sentiment, which you'd expect. Right, 13 years ago, lots of skeptics, now almost no skeptics, totally. so totally in line with that. And then we cross into going public and, and put a, about a little less, but about call it half a billion, 500 million or so net of fees and all that other stuff and get, getting public uh, on the balance sheet. So what's odd is we have more on our balance sheet right now than we have ever net spent over oh, really? 13 years. Yeah, yeah. Just to give people a kind of relative measure, and but but we have a whole company and products and ter- and big staff and you know and a lot of inertia. So the good news is, I mean, just a relative size of the war chest. If you know mid sixes get you here, but you have I haven't spent it all. We didn't spend all spend all of those mid sixes. So now we're sitting here with you know more than we've net spent ever. Uh, in the history of the company in front of us, but we've got also all the things that you know we've managed to build up over the years. That's a very nice position to be in. We're fortunate to be in that position right now for us. So that's that's sort of the capital picture. And then use, you know, we built out a lot in two new sectors for uh, well, one geography and one sector. We built out a ton in Europe, and we're going to continue to chase that to build market share in Europe. So. Uh, part of it is just to fund operations and be able to continue to scale on our march to profitability and really get Europe fully established. We've been working it, at Europe for years and it takes a while to get uh, product line, staff, support infrastructure, everything all sorted. Going into you know any country, is it's a labor of love. It's not an overnight thing. And we've been working diligently at it. And Now we, we think we have all the in- infrastructure in place and we can really scale it. So that's one. The second, the fleet market. Boy, I wish there were fleet vehicles available because everyone wants them, but they can't get production quantities in, in sufficient quantity to match their appetite. If you had hundred thousand delivery vanish vehicles available today for order, they would be gone. The orders would they would be fully booked.
0: Well, that's what that's what Amazon ordered right from Rivian is a hundred thousand electric vans.
1: Yeah, except that Rivian has to. And they're a great company, but they've got to put the production capacity to be able to build those. I'm saying if the production capacity was was just where passenger cars are now in the fleet space, Mm. that thing would be just going like gangbusters. So we are focused heavily on investing with our early customers there and getting everything right. And, you know, what it amounts to is small pilots with very large companies that have very large potential to continue to expand their charging infrastructure with us. But the investment required to get started is way more than the profit thrown off by the size of the businesses today. So you need, the, you need the capital to be able to chase that unfettered, right? Because the customer knows, hey, you know, over the next 10 years, this is going to be, you know, good for both of us. But they want to see that partnership where you're you're investing in R&D and support and all the things that they need. And that's that's another big use of the capital. And then lastly, I mean, I, I, I expect there to be some M&A opportunities that come up. And I'd like to have some dry powder for that. And so right. that, that was the other goal is to have enough wiggle room to be able to even consider it.
0: And is there a sense of like they're almost like a race between like where we started with this kind of this explosion of new electric vehicles that are going to be coming onto the market in the next 18 months and a rush to kind of put enough infrastructure in place. So it's like when people actually start buying these things, it's not like, oh, this sucks. You know, oh, I did get, you know, (laughs) like this this isn't actually all it's cracked up to be. I'm going to go back and get my electric,
1: uh, my, you know, I'm going to go sell this and get a, a gas car so i think it's about so i'm gonna i'm not trying to be a contrarian but i'm gonna i'm gonna give you both bookends to that question because that's a very complicated question so it's only in that long-haul driving case where there's i think a shortage of coverage on routes all right and that's that again that's getting cleaned up in pretty much every major market in the world and is mature to varying degrees but that's where a little bit of organized lean in coordinated lean in with you know some policy incentives government incentives things like that to just support that utilization gap because the problem is yeah you may have to build a portfolio of charging sites that don't uniformly get used because to give people confidence that they can drive between the road the two destinations less traveled populating that road less traveled means that the utilization isn't there to, su- to justify the infrastructure and and I think that's the A good role for governments to get some utilization cushioning but still have the businesses invest that's the key i.e some type of
0: subsidy or support yeah but a
1: subsidy that's measured in that sunsets over time and that's proportional to the utilization gap to profitability and there's a bunch of different ways to administer that now the other side of the spectrum is if you overbuild then no one gets enough utilization to care if you overbuild too early. So if you overstimulate it with too much subsidy, then all the convenience stores and food concessions and shopping concessions say, well, I put this in, but no one's coming by at the frequency that I would have wanted. So I'm kind of not interested in this. And that's something that you don't want to have happen either. You don't want the dust collector. And there's only... I'm going to use U.S. numbers, it's similar in Europe. There's only about 15 million cars in the U.S. that are sold per annum. And there's a quarter billion cars in light-duty trucks. So the fastest it can go is 100% electrification tomorrow of all new cars, which isn't going to happen, right, purchased. That would take 17 years (laughs) to turn over that quarter billion fleet. So it's not like we need to build out enough charging infrastructure for a quarter billion vehicles in the U.S. and actually a few more vehicles in Europe because Europe is a little over 300,000. We don't need to build that out overnight. We just need to seed it and then let the organic fill-in happen due to utilization. And if you overbuild up front, no business loves it because no business sees any kind of horizon where they could get any payback. And then you got a then you've got the opposite problem where you've got an ignored set of assets that are under Yeah,
0: it's like if you build it, they will come eventually, which isn't a great business model.
1: Right. So, you want to build it along with utilization. So, the pioneers that are really investing in it really get some early feedback that, hey, this is worth it. And maybe I got some subsidies for the sites that are less frequently used from the government, but th- this is all worth it. And my model of break even on the fuel or make a little bit on the fuel, but have the other businesses on the site flourish, that's all working, right? Because remember, they want visits. So, if they don't get the visits from the cars, because there's an overbuild we put in a quarter billion worth of infrastructure 15 years too early everyone's like okay i don't get this because they're business people
0: yeah yeah and then just lastly on that on the,
1: just how you make money so what is the kind of the model well for us we realized a couple things in the early days of the company one uh, while the driver is the consumer is someone we invest in with mobile applications and CarPlay and Android integration and in Dash native integrations, all that labor of love. That's not our revenue. And our revenue doesn't come from the driver. We don't charge subscription fees or anything like that. Because that's just inserting friction for friction's sake. Businesses pay us an annual subscription to keep the charger on the charge point network. And that subscription doesn't include a tax on power Aside from just covering the transaction costs of being the payment agent, because we're the payment agent, right? So we collect a little bit for that, but trust me, it's not moving the needle. And because we've stayed off of making money on power and we charge a fixed fee, the business has the ability to do whatever they want with it, to make it a customer amenity, to preferentially treat certain customers, to give power away. Because if we're not taxing power, we're not negatively incented by that customer. Yeah. Right? We don't care. So for us, it's a fixed per port fee. And it's a different rate depending on the service plan they buy and the type of charger they're, they're putting out there. And we get paid that fixed fee. And for that, you get all the features that your service plan gives you on the network. And you get driver support is built in. You don't have to have you know trained people to take care of the driver. We'll take care of that for you, all that sort of stuff. So it's turnkey turnkey, it's much like Airbnb. You own the chart, you own the capital asset as the individual business, right? So just like an Airbnb, you and I might have an in-law cottage on our property that we want to rent, but the platform makes it look like one platform to a driver or in the fleet case, a fleet, and we're taking care of everything. So the individual CapEx owner doesn't have to worry and that's really kind of what we get paid to do. So we're in there not being really dependent on trying to, you know, very, I think it's very high friction to try to fleece money from drivers on a subscription basis, just for giving them access to a charging network that someone else paid for. I, uh, You know, that's not really our deal. So, right. And then how long have you been with
0: ChargePoint now? I just passed my 10 year anniversary. So in 2021 did you imagine you would that the industry and the company would be where it is right now another cuz you know as you said when you 13 years ago when the company started it was kind of like yeah 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 electric vehicles uh huh there was like the tesla roadster which was like a uh, way expensive and there was like 200 of them and that was kind of it and obviously the world has changed pretty dramatically since then but I'm just wondering like if you cast your mind back to 10 years ago are things as far along as you thought they would be 10 years, 10 years on? And you know how
1: confident were you in that this was actually going to happen? So I was actually very, very, very confident that this was going to happen. In fact, I wrote a blog post about that in the early days of the company. And I think the title of the blog post was my parking lot moment or something like that. It's when I interviewed for the job for CEO of ChargePoint. And I had interviewed with uh, Mark Leshley, who was our board member representing Roe Ventures. Uh, Yeah, He had made an investment in the company. And I had sat in the parking lot after that interview and was punching the calculator to see how big the opportunity can be. Because transportation or mobility in general for goods and people is so much bigger than the average total addressable market that you have to actually punch the calculator to believe it. And so what I did was sat there and ran some numbers in a whole bunch of different directions, like attach rate to vehicles and attach rate to the 2 billion parking spaces, because there's about that in just the United States, let alone Europe, and then you kind of multiply globally. And what you realize is that it's an incredibly big opportunity. And then if you do the basic math on you know, battery technology, where that could go, how simple an electro- electric car is, Relative to its gasoline equivalent, you really start to see the opportunity of electrification of mobility in general. And I was just sitting there awed. In fact, what I said in that blog post, uh, which was actually true, I didn't do it for dramatic effect, was that I needed to turn my calculator from portrait mode to landscape mode because you know how it goes into scientific notation because there's not enough digits. When you're in portrait mode, I had to flip it to landscape mode because there was just so many zeros and on what, you know, the size of the business could be. And I kept checking my math because I'm like, this can't be right. And I kept checking my math and lo and behold, that, you know, the math seemed to hold. And, uh, you know, I was in right from that moment. Uh, And then one of the things I've learned is you can't peg exactly how often or how long I should say it's going to take. To get from T equals zero to T equals tipping point, you don't know how long that's going to take. So what I did was just managed cash and stuck to our first principles and understanding that you know electricity being pervasively distributed and the cost structure of the vehicle being so superior as things matured, if it went electric, we would just have to wait it out
0: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Pat for taking the time to come on the pod again. Uh, We've been having a lot of these kind of uh, two and three timers on the pod recently, which is kind of fun to kind of revisit how people are doing. I want to thank you guys for listening, of course, and for the ratings and reviews, which I know all of you have already done, because that helps other people to kind of find the show and start listening and tell their friends and all that stuff. So please keep that up. I really, really do appreciate it. And that's it for this week. I'll be back next week. We've got a couple great guests coming up. So I think you guys will be happy with uh, what we've got coming on the slate. So thank you again for listening. You can find me at thetimes.co.uk on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. Or you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Stay safe, stay sane. We're almost there, y'all. Talk soon. Bye-bye. imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson on times radio a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become This week, the politician turned broadcaster Ed Balls talks candidly about his time in government, how he overcame the school bullies and why he kept his lifelong stammer a secret. And I left thinking, I didn't know I was a coward. I thought I was not trying to put myself centre stage. I thought I was just trying to kind of not expose something about myself. But actually, I'm a coward. Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Ed Balls in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passenger Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station
1: iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.